Hi, this is Seth Rodney. It's a cloudy and somewhat mournful July 12th. Uh, I'm coming to you from Newburgh, where I live, and this is the note for this episode of the American Age uh, podcast. I want to follow up on a conversation, the conversation that we had uh, last week, where we talked about intellectuals that we respect. It occurred to me, after hearing Travis and Stephen talk about the various people they respect and disagree with, uh, Sam Harris, Peter Zahan, H.P. Lovecraft, Martha Jefferson, Michelle Wallace, that they are very much in touch with the kind of intellectual ancestry they claim. I think that listening to them, I realized that I wasn't as much in touch with that. I mean, I know of my, I'm aware of some of the key people in my intellectual ancestry, but I don't often talk about them. I think most of the time that I've talked about Bourdieu was, uh, Pierre Bourdieu was during the time I was doing research on my thesis and then later on on the book, The Personalization of the Museum Visit, which was published by Routledge in 2019. Uh, I often talk about artists who've influenced me, and I often talk about poets, such as Sylvia Plath, who have influenced me. Uh, I think there was a point in my intellectual development, probably around the time I went back to undergrad during the early 90s, where I may have explicitly said this to myself, I didn't want to write like typical academics. I think typical academic writing is very careful, maybe even better to say self-conscious, about stitching together the antecedents, the, uh, the intellectual, the conceptual, uh, antecedents to their own work, to the work of the writer, I should say. And that's fine. I think it's really important to preserve that tradition of carrying on a conversation that has been going on. It is like stepping into, doing this kind of writing is like stepping into a, an already flowing river, recognizing that there is a current and that you, one writes within that kind of stream. So it's important to imagine that one is not just reinventing um, uh, whatever idea one's trying to engage with. So I have respect for that, I do, but I just, I find that it in, in the sort of formal expression of that basic idea there's a lot to be bored by in academic writing. Uh, and I think that that spills over into art criticism. People will 
quote other people ad nauseum, especially if they happen to be hot right now, like Sadia Hartman or uh, Christina Sharp. And they'll, and what will typically happen in the kind of thing I'm talking about in the kind of piece alt- article I'm talking about is they'll use a quote by Hartman or Sharp, and then essentially make the argument that the the show or the work of art that they're discussing is in some ways connected to that idea or illustrative of it. And then they'll stitch together another quote by another uh, leading intellectual or um, leading academic, and then another, and then another. And it feels like they're essentially justifying, the writers are essentially justifying what they've come up with by saying to the reader, look, reader, um, I've, all I've done is taken the ball another couple of inches uh, um, uh, to cross the goal line. But really, all these other writers have gotten us um, the most yardage. And all I'm doing is just sort of uh, taking, taking, it, taking the idea a little further. And I want to always say, well, what if you just, I don't know, like made an argument without resort to all of those writers and thinkers and researchers? I just feel, this is what I end up doing in my own writing, especially in my art criticism. I don't depend a lot. I don't lean on a lot of other thinkers. I think partly because what's really valid in that in my art criticism is the degree to which I am open, available to the work, perceptive. I don't think I'm the most perceptive person in the world, but I think that I can turn a lot of the noises off and really pay attention to something in a way that yields more than the kind of analysis that depends on other researchers' takes on what the writer's actually looking at. So I recall this conversation I had with uh, uh, a person who used to be a friend, Nathan Dunn, who was in the same program I graduated from uh, at Berkeley College, University of London, the London Consortium Program. I remember him saying when we were out at a lunch one day, that he was shocked at the degree to which some writers could just write for pages and pages without any footnotes, without basically anyone else cited. And I realized that I'm at the stage in my development where I can do that and am actually generally more comfortable doing that than I am with doing the sort of opposite, which is the sort of uh, template that I've laid out. Yeah, and I'm just not that interested in, in in quoting Henry Louis Gates at Gates ad nauseum, and I'm I'm just I I feel like 
there has to be a I want to find and doesn't I suppose it doesn't have to be but I want to find a, a sort of happy medium between uh, acting as if uh, all the ideas that I bring to bear on the analysis of a particular art object or show come from me I realized that the majority of my ideas are things that I've learned from other people that have become nuanced over time um, by me rolling these ideas around my head and around my tongue. But they do come from somewhere, but I want to be able to do that kind of citation without it being so, I don't know, obvious, heavy-handed, um, and frankly, just kind of... Uh, it just feels weak. It just feels weak sometimes when it's as if the writer, when writers do this, they don't trust themselves enough to just make the argument and make a kind of logical uh, 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 structure for the point they want to make. I, I, I feel like that's possible too, that one doesn't just have to cite the quote-unquote authorities to write a text that is authoritative. So the conversation that I had with Travis and Stephen made me think about that, made me think about maybe ways I should think more deeply about how I cite people and, and, the, condi and the conditions under which I do, and whether I need to do more of that or not. Frankly, I think I'm at the point in my life where I should get back to reading books. It's been years since I've been able to, because I, for so for the time I was that hyperallergic, I was just so caught up reading the news of the day, and reading the articles that I had to read in order to be conversant with the particular people I had to write about. I just haven't read books in a long time, and I and I need to get back to doing that. So, yeah. That's what I'm going to commit myself to doing. And then who knows, maybe my attitude to a citation might change a bit. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is C. Travis Webb, uh, editor of The American Age, and this is my note on last week's podcast. Um, Stephen Fullwood isn't with us this week. Um, he has uh, some personal uh, challenges to address with his family. Um, and, uh, I'm sure when he comes back to the podcast, you know, he, he's, you know, will, will be more or less willing to talk about them. Um, certainly my thoughts are with him and I know Seth's are too. Um, uh, not a lot to say about last week's conversation. Um, it was a great conversation. You know, I spent, uh, some time, we all spent some time ruminating on the people that kind of inspire us, uh, motivate us, uh, irritate us, um, you know, sort of prick us to action, um, uh, or admiration. And, um, you know, the list for me is, it's like, is stupid long. Um, uh, you know, Stephen had a, had a pretty long list of people. I think Seth and I were a, a little bit more, um, reserved with, with the people we, we spoke about. Um, but it is a challenge, right? I mean, sort of teasing out, uh, the intellectual forebears, our intellectual forebears, you know, kind of figuring out, uh, how to properly acknowledge, uh, the larger community that's produced 
our thoughts. Uh, I know for me that that's a challenge. I mean, it's literally a challenge when I'm speaking or writing. Uh, my inclination is to uh, want a footnote or um, or offer a parenthetical aside about where I got this idea from or how this is similar to that idea. Um, I tend to think analogically in that way. Um, but it can sometimes be muddy, right? I mean, it's this, this can sometimes get in the way of conveying a compelling narrative. So it's a tough, um, it's a tough balancing act for me, at least. I'm, there are people that I'm, it's clearly not a challenge for, but it's hard for me, uh, to know, um, where to draw the line and what is, what is an acceptably moderate amount of, um, references to offer to the listener uh, and uh, to the reader. Uh, and so it's it's difficult when I'm tasked with something like, oh, you know, who are your influences or whatever. Um, I go through this whole, you know, sort of chain of thoughts around, well, you know, I spent, you know, a couple of years uh, really improving my German so that I could read Nietzsche uh, in the original, which is true. Um, you, know, you wouldn't know it if you heard me, you know, order a Bratwurst in Monheim now, but you know, it, it, it's true. I did spend a great deal of time uh, uh, working at that. Or, um, you know, the summers I spent as an undergrad uh, with the Frankfurt School, Herbert Marcuse and Theodore Adorno with uh, a pencil and a dictionary and long, long afternoons sitting on my parents' islands trying to figure out what the fuck they were talking about. Um, I didn't have, you know, the intellectual equipment at that time to kind of easily make my way through their work, although it probably would be ridiculous to say that anyone easily makes their way through Adorno's work, um, or Horkheimer for that matter. But, um, uh, but, that's all in there, right? I mean, all these things are in there. You know, the 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 time I spent with Das Kapital, or you know, the time I spent seriously engaging with Bordeaux, uh, the time I spent, you know, seriously reading, obsessively reading uh, T.S. Eliot. Um, you know, I, I mean, the 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 list of of people who I am indebted to. And who you hear when I speak is, I can't, I couldn't possibly, anything I would write would be a fiction, right? I would be just creating some arbitrary narrative around it. It all makes me who I am intellectually, of course, not necessarily in my intimate relationships, but it informs all of my thinking. So if you hear something that comes out of my mouth is like, oh, that sounds like weirdly conservative, or that sounds weirdly like reactionary, or that sounds um, like, you know, that's really liberal or, or whatever. It's all just a mash of these people and my own impressions of the human beings around me. And so my debt to them is immense. Um, I had a phenomenal, phenomenal, phenomenal uh short story uh, professor Charles May um, when I was doing my master's in English. Uh, and I mean, just his, his command of the 
the form, the short story form and his knowledge of short stories and the clear joy uh, that he felt in, in talking about these stories um, and communicating um, like the deep mystery that suffuses that form, right? A short story is much closer to a parable than it is to a novel. It's much closer to a poem than it is um, to longer form fiction loose baggy monsters as Henry James called them. Um, but that's all that inspiration. Um, that's all in there. Uh, and I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude for all of these people and ideas that I've come across, um, and respect other people who struggle with these ideas, which I have to say, I think is everyone, right? I mean, just because, you know, the, checker or the barista at Starbucks hasn't uh, spent time reading Herbert Marcuse doesn't mean that he or she hasn't thought about the limits of, um, or kind of the social restrictions on our ability to love one another or see one another, or the ways in which Starbucks co-ops things. Of course, these things are noticed by people who haven't spent time with structuralists or post-structuralists or post-colonialists or whatever else, fill in the blank, um, that you like. You can go in the more analytic tradition as well, you know, people who are trained in statistics and Bayesian analysis to, to examine um, social phenomena. It doesn't mean that the individuals who aren't doing those things explicitly are not having those thoughts. Um, because they do all ultimately come from our experience of the world. We see people, we interact with people. Um, people break our hearts. Uh, people inspire us. Um, yeah, I, 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 that, I, I don't have much else to add beyond that. I, I left off so many last week. Uh, it would be impossible. I'd be speaking till the end of time, until the end of my time, I should say. I shouldn't be so arrogant. Um, I would be speaking to the end of my time on the earth if I were to footnote everyone that inspires me or uh, irritates me, um, animates me, really. I mean, that's what it comes down to, right? What, like, what spurs you to movement, to action, to thought? Um, couldn't do it. It's not possible for me. I'm probably not possible for most of us, uh, whether you read or not. Um, and so we're all a groundspring of, you know, this deep, deep earthen reservoir that long, long, long precedes us. And our language is littered with these inspirations. Um, the languages that came before us, the people that came before us. Um, and so, you know, I, uh, I loved the topic. I love the topic. I also feel like I can't even come close to doing the topic justice um, because there's just too much to say. Um, my thoughts are with Stephen um, and of course, Seth. Um, I uh, will look forward to speaking to them next week. Uh, there is a small, as I understand it, there's a small possibility that uh, Stephen might not be able to join us, but that's temporary um, and he'll be back and he's healthy. So there's nothing to be concerned about on that end. Um, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>